Well, as most of you know, we've been working through uh, the Song of Songs. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2. So our title today is Forfeiting True Intimacy. And before I read it, as you turn there, I would just want to share a story with you. This is a true story from a faraway land, maybe you've heard of, called America. And... Uh, it involved a boy and a girl. I'll tell you a little bit about the boy and the girl. So the girl seemed to have a full social calendar, seemed to have a hundred best friends at a time, whereas this guy, he tended to wander off in the woods on the weekends by himself or be found ensconced in the library for hours and hours at a time. But uh, believe it or not, God brought these two people together and was it long before Joy was making her way over to the library to see me from time to time? And so sparks happen, familiar story. So we're married. And we got married. I was 25. Joy was 21. And she just kind of, at that point, went along with whatever I wanted to do, it seemed like. And so we went on a honeymoon to a place I chose, sort of an island off the North Carolina coast. You can only get there by ferry. And so we've been there for a couple of days. And again... I like to be by myself sometimes. I was like, hey, Joy, I'm going to go off for a walk for a while and just, you know, wander by myself. All right, so I had a great walk, you know, prayed, <laughs> thanked the Lord for our time together. Um, I even brought back a bracelet for Joy. Um, but, but what was she thinking that whole time? Why did he leave me? <laughs> what was he thinking? We just got married, my goodness. Uh, so maybe you've heard of the honeymoon phase, right? You've all heard of that. Uh, sometimes it lasts for a while, sometimes it's, it's shorter. So that was kind of our first little conflict, right, So in the honeymoon phase. So keep that in mind today. So the title today for our sermon is Forfeiting True Intimacy. So I'm going to read Song of Songs uh, chapter 5, verse 2. I'm just going to read our entire passage for today to start today. So that runs on to chapter 6, verse 3. I slept, but my heart was awake. As my beloved is knocking, a sound. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed within me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. Others, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? She, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk. Sitting beside a full pool, 
His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on vases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Others, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. If you think back to last week, uh, where did we end last week? We ended with this beautiful celebration of love between a man and a woman in marriage. The last few verses were eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So we have this high point, but lo and behold, um, it didn't take very long before there's a bit of conflict. So what we're going to do today is take a look at what happens here in chapter 5. So we've been thinking about this in two ways, right? So we've been thinking about how this applies to marriage, right, to a man and a woman, but also how this applies to Christ and his church. So the big purpose, what I want to get across today, is Jesus is the faithful friend who pursues us. Keep that in mind throughout. Jesus is the faithful friend who pursues us. And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, the rejection, the longing, and the acceptance. Let's first look at this rejection. So what happens? Look at chapter 5, verse 2. We have, again, three people speaking throughout this book. You have he, you have others, you have she. So in our passage today, he doesn't speak, but he is all throughout this passage. And so it begins, I slept, but my heart was awake. I slept, but my heart was awake. Um, So what's happening here? So we have this woman who is in the bed. Uh, Maybe she's not comfortable. Maybe she's wondering, as Joy did, what is he doing? Uh, He's not here, right? So she's in bed, but he's not here. Uh, And she hears a sound, right? So she wakes up. My beloved is knocking. So she hears someone here at the door knocking. She must know his knock. She must know his sound. She knows that it's him. But the door is locked, right? So, you know, there could be some potential for a fight there, right? If you've locked the door, he's outside, you know, what's, what's happening here? So she's locked it, but look at the words that he entreats her with. Four words, open to me, my sister. So a sign of closeness, of friendship, of kinship, of familiarity. My love, my dove, which is often a sign of perfection in the Old Testament. Of course, we know it's applied to the Spirit in the New Testament. And my perfect one. So there's no hints here that he did something wrong, right? There could have been work. Who knows why he was out? He was out late at night. And he's asking, please let me in, my love, my sister, my dove, my perfect one. So he's expecting to be uh, let in. It says, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Right? So he's been out. He's tired, he's cold, he's wet, let me in. But what does she say in response to him? 
She says, I'm in bed already. <laughs> right? She says, I've taken my clothes off. My feet are clean. I don't want to get out of bed. Right? Go away for a while. So this is the first kind of hint that there's a bit of disunity happening very early in this marriage. And for those of you who are married today, maybe you can think back to that first time it happened to you. Right? Maybe it took two days like it did with us. Maybe it took an hour. Maybe it took a month. But it happened, right? That first time where you had disunity. Now think about also how you responded to the disunity in the moment. Right? And also think in this case, who's knocking? Right? Who is knocking at this door? It's not just any man. Right? This is the king. This is the king knocking, saying, in the kindest way possible, let me in. But she says, no, I'm too tired. And I think this can come from a couple of places. Right? So one could be maybe some insecurity. Right? Like, what does he want? Am I, am I good enough? We saw that earlier in the book where she talks about her skin being dark because she's outside, she's working. Am I good enough? And I think that's the case sometimes in our marriage, some insecurity inside saying, am I good enough? And is this the right thing for me? Uh, Joy and I have been watching a series called Welcome to Wrexham. Anybody seen that? It's a good cultural commentary. Um, I've, I've never seen Neil lose his cool, but... I think the closest I ever saw when, it's, when I said, I'm thinking about being a Rexon fan, Neil. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. Um, but what I found interesting in the series is, so if you don't know it, you have two Americans who come in, they buy the team for about two million pounds, and they're pouring money into the town. So the response of the town is very telling. So we lived in Cardiff for four years. Uh, sometimes in kind of the Welsh valleys, you have this idea that no one cares about us, right? So you had mining, which left, so you had people without jobs. And so you have that in Wrexham. So you have a lot of people saying, they're just going to leave. Why would they want to be here, right? I, this isn't going to work out. It's kind of insecurity built in. Um, but then you have some others who are saying, let's give them a chance. Let's see what happens. And there's a local band that writes a song. It's kind of the chorus of the song. Less than a mile from the center of town, a famous old stadium is crumbling down. No one is invested so much as a penny. Bring on the Deadpool and Rob McElhinney. <laughs> so the idea is, come on, let's give this a try. So despite their insecurity, they're saying, let's open up to them. Let's see what happens. And towards the end of season two, Rob asks, so how much is the team worth now? And they say, well, about eight million pounds now. Right? So there's a sense in which they didn't realize their own worth. Right? So it quadrupled in two years. So you have this insecurity running throughout. In every marriage, I think there's a sense in which if we're not centered in Christ, right, we're going to be insecure. So it could be that. It could simply be the sin of selfishness. My desires, my hurt, my retribution are more important than you, right? So you were out late. I'm in the bed. I don't want to get up. And let me tell you something. I've been in this chapter all week and I was in the bed this week, and Joyce said, will you go do this thing? And I said, I'm in bed. <laughs> so <laughs> talk about conviction. Right? Uh, so there's a sense in which we, no matter where you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, selfishness, right? Me, my, my desires, what I want is more important than you. And that's something you have to fight in marriage. But in this moment, right, she lets selfishness uh, give way to selflessness, and of course, we know Jesus tells us, whoever desires to follow me must take up his cross, right? Um, so we have to live a life of humility and selflessness. 
So what can we take from this? So very early on the marriage, what has been won, right? This marriage, it seems to be lost. As we read through this book, we're considering both the literal marriage, but also uh, Christ and his church. So what can this teach us about Christ and his church? Alongside a Song of Songs, I've been reading this uh, Baptist pastor from the 18th century named John Gill. And here's what Gill said about verse 1. I slept, but my heart was awake. He said, now from this whole account, which she gives of herself as sleeping and yet waking, we can observe the following things. That a believer has two principles in him. A principle of corruption, right, selfishness. A principle of grace. The one he brings into the world with him, the other is wrought by the Spirit of God. These are represented by two persons, both by the church here, who speaks of the eye that sleeps and a heart that wakes, and by the apostles elsewhere who speaks of a new man and an old man, of himself as having no good things dwelling in him, and yet of that eye that sinneth not. So what does that mean? Inside us, we have the old man right, battling the new man. We have the selfishness battling the selflessness example that Christ gives us. So how do we battle sin? Right? It's through active obedience empowered by the Spirit. So reading on here, so what happens? She decides, you know what? I'm going to get out of my bed. Right? So I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to get out of bed. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers would look at myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So there's a sense in which she realizes, you know what? I should have opened to that knocking. Now let's think about this in the context of the New Testament. Uh, so we probably don't have... Um, Yahweh, God mentioned in the Song of Songs, maybe in chapter 8, but maybe not. But we see him all over the book. And similarly, the Song of Songs is not directly quoted in the New Testament, but I think there are some allusions, some places you can see it. Uh, most clearly is in Revelation 3.20. So think of the first this analogy of the husband in a gentle way, saying, open to me, my sister, my love. Now, Revelation 3.20 Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. Christ comes, he knocks, he requests entry to intimacy with our souls. So the Song of Songs uses marriage to show this relationship of Christ initiating of response. Revelation uses this metaphor of a guest, right? Knocking requesting entry. But who awakens the soul? Who starts this relationship? Who lets you know you need a Savior? It's the Savior himself through the Spirit who is awakening us to this. And of course, in this case, her response is negative. And similarly, you have the church in Laodicea. Think about what Christ said to them. He said, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is a church that Jesus is rebuking and warning to repent and have an active faith. So in the midst of this, he is beckoning, open, open the door. I think for the Christian, there's also some hints here 
that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Right? So she knew who was knocking. Right? She knew it was her husband. John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Think about a time where you've heard the spirit knocking and you've said, no, I'm gonna just take care of myself. We've all been there, right? We've all sinned. We've all said no. Let's also consider some other ways that Revelation talks about Jesus, right? So we have the one here knocking. He's also the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the Amen, the true and faithful witness, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in chapter 19. So this king, he's standing at the door, gently knocking. And what are the tender and pleading words he says? Open to me. So this invitation from the king is indeed for all of us. So first we have the rejection. Now let's consider the longing, right? She realizes what she's done wrong. So we read verse five there where this concept where she's going to the door. So earlier uh, he says to her, um, kind of towards see, 5-1, he says, I gathered my myrrh. Now she says, my hands are dripping with myrrh. So there's kind of anticipation happening. She gets to the door in verse six in expectation he is there, right? I opened to my beloved, but my beloved has turned and gone. Right, what's happened here? He's not there anymore. Um, if you could put up the quote from Charles Spurgeon, um, it says, the happiest condition of a Christian out of heaven is to live in the conscious enjoyment of the presence of the Lord Jesus. So what would have been the best case scenario for her to be in the presence of the king? What is the best case for us to sit, to commune, to be in the presence of the king? But we have broken fellowship, right? So what do we do in that brokenness? She has disappointment in not finding her beloved. Verse six says, my soul failed when he spoke. I sought, but I found him not. Have you ever said to yourself, I wish I hadn't done that. Or, I wish I hadn't said that. Surely we all have. We've all locked the door. We've all said no. But how is she going to respond? She could have turned over and said, I've had enough of this. Good night. She could have turned over and still had her heart awake and just being rude to him. I'm going to keep the door locked, teach him a lesson. Uh, but she gets up, right? So she takes an active step. She says, I'll get my tunic. I'll put my tunic on. I'm not gonna worry about my dirty feet. Let's go see if he's at the door. So there's an active step that she takes, but he's not there. (laughs) He's not at the door. There's a sense of desperation as she seeks out her beloved. Reflect on 1 Corinthians 7.10 with me, which says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance, which repentance lead to salvation. Worldly grief, death. So what is worldly grief? This is caused by the loss or denial of something, we want for ourselves. Again, worldly grief is caused by the loss or denial of something we want for ourselves. 
If I only had, fill it in, right? If I had that job, if I had that person, if I had money, if I lived there, right? There's a sense in which it's never enough. So what does worldly grief result in? Despair, bitterness, paralysis. It causes our soul to drown. So if we sit in this worldly grief, if I only had. Think of Judas. So Judas, who betrayed our Lord, there was grief after the fact, right? He wants to give the money back. But what did his grief lead to? It led to despair, right? Godly grief, this verse teaches us, leads to repentance, So let's look at what we see here with the Shulamite woman. So she's grieved. Just think about that phrase, my soul failed within me. What language? (laughs) My soul failed. What am I going to do? Where is he? Where is my king? And look at what happens to her, verse 7. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. What in the world's happening here? <laughs> so she goes out, she's searching for him, and these watchmen find her. Now, we've seen the watchmen before. So they appear in chapter 3. I'll just give you a reminder what's happening here. So in chapter 3, she's kind of in a dream state, which is similar to this chapter. And she rises, goes about the city, seeking for her bridegroom, And in chapter 3, verse 3, the watchman found me as they went about and said, Have you seen him my soul loves? So we have a kind of positive to neutral encounter. So here we have a negative encounter. And Neil explained when we were preaching through chapter 3 that there's times in our life where Christ seems far. You've been there. There's times where you're saying, Where are you, Lord? What's happening? Why did that person die? Why am I depressed? What's happening? But here, we know why the watchman mistreated her, right? (laughs) She sinned, right? So there's analogy here. She's being bruised. She's being battered for what happened. We know why he's absent. She rejected him. So how do we interpret this? So Puritans, kind of who took a very allegorical interpretation, they saw this as the officers of the church, so I'm not advocating Neil and Ryan take, you know, bludgeon and start beating people in sin. That's not what's happening here. But the idea is there's a guardianship happening where you are caring for, protecting the sheep, we're protecting the flock. Right? If you want to be repentant, there's got to be a place of humility, of brokenness, where you're saying, I can't do this on my own. So this is where she is. I can't do this on my own. Uh, one commentator, Dennis Kinlaw, said, does this treatment by the watchman Reflect the girl's guilt and sense of failure at the slowness of her response to her husband. I believe it does. This is a love wound. Having been broken, heartbroken, she now acts on her change of heart. So think about times of repentance. Maybe it was painful to say, I did this. Maybe it hurt. In her case, it's even humiliating, right? She's beaten, she's bruised, her clothes are torn. So being broken for sin and longing for Christ is quite different than admitting you're wrong because you got caught, right? So that's godly grief. That's different than repentance. Here, she is broken. Also think about 
what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And in that day, they will fast. There's a day coming where we have separation happening, but Christ will come again. You could show the next quote, please. Get another Spurgeon quote. He says, A repentance, it is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character. So what is repentance? Right? It's a heart change. It's not just, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry I got caught. It's, I'm changing direction. I'm coming in humility before my Lord. And then verse 8. So she's beaten. This is the low point. Right? So she's down. It's as if she learned a lesson. What does she say? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved then you will tell him, I am sick with love. What is, who is she thinking about now? She's not thinking about herself or her clean feet. She's thinking about her beloved, right? the one her soul loves. In her state of humility, <laughs> repentance, if you see him, let him know that I love him, that I'm in fact sick with love. And look at how the others respond. So the others appear several times in this book. I'll read what they say first and think through what it means. Verse 9, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved? Thus you adjure us. So there's a few ways you can take it. Uh, One could be mocking. What's so great about your beloved? But I don't think that's the case because the others have been kind of a form of affirmation throughout here. So I'm taking this more rhetorical Explain to us again, why is your beloved so great? What is so great about him? So think about that low moment in your life where you were down, or maybe you turned in repentance. What did you cling to? If you cling to Christ, right, you thought about the one for whom you were sick with love. You thought of the promised one. Just think of Christ for a minute, the sinless one, the son of man, the son of God, the true prophet the great high priest, the suffering servant, the firstborn of creation, the alpha, the omega, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart, the one who humbled himself to the point of death and is now highly exalted, the one born in a stable who has welcomed you to his banquety table as a friend, as a brother, as a sister, as one perfected in him, as one who has called us saints because of his shed blood. The Savior, the Lamb on the throne, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And what does she do? She takes time to do what I just did. What is so great about the King? Let me tell you. So think about that sort of in your own life. How are people going to hear of the King if we don't tell them? What does Romans 10 tell us? How will they call on him who they not heard? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Don't think that your neighbors actually know who Jesus is if you've never talked about who he is. Otherwise, just a character, someone you think about around Christmas, right? Not the king, 
not the Savior I just talked about. So these others give her an opportunity to say, tell me about that one. So let's look at what she says. And again, I want to think about this uh, in the context of our Savior. So verses 10 through 16 are just praise for her beloved. Let me read 10 through 16. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is of the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice of the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, the daughters of Jerusalem. So in particular, there are three things that he praises, she praises him for. First is his uniqueness. He is distinguished among 10,000. Where does Jesus stand among the gods? There's not a comparison. Second is his attractiveness. So she spends verse after verse thinking through his beauty. And finally, there's one that I've, in my own heart this week, thought about a lot. He cultivates friendship. Verse 16. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. So it's not just this is the God or this is the king so far away, right? This is the king who came down to us, who called us his friend. Uh, the King James translate this where it says uh, he is um, lovely. It says, yea, he is altogether lovely. If you don't take anything else today, take that phrase with you and just, just sit on it. Just sit on it. Yea, he is altogether lovely. How is your love for Jesus today? (laughs) Think of him. Think of the one who is lovely. Jesus loves you and he likes you. (laughs) And he's called you his friend. What a beautiful image. So we began by looking at her sin. We then looked at her longing for him. Where is he? And finally, I want to look at the acceptance that happens. So we're going to look at six, uh, one, two, three. So the others come back, and what do they say? So after hearing this, I bet they were blown away, right? Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned? Now listen to this, that we may seek him with you. They're coming along. They're no longer saying, tell me about him. They're saying, I want to go find him. Again, think about sharing Christ with our friends and our neighbors, There's attraction when they see Christ in you. I want to have what you have. Where is he? I want to find him too. So where did this king go? I'll tell you a story that happened to me as a little kid. This probably happened to you as well at some point in your life. This is one of my earliest memories. It's probably three, four. And we were at a department store, and I did what every little kid does. I just ran into the... Clothes, right? Just <coughs> clothes, all right. So I was in there a few seconds, 
But the memory I have is looking up, pulling my head out. Where is my mom? <laughs> Where is she? You've heard the kid crying, Mom! <laughs> That's what I did. I'm sure she was a couple meters from me, right? But I thought I was lost, I was gone. She had abandoned me. Is that the character of our king? <laughs> is that the man you see in the story? Where is he? Look at verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. Think about this garden analogy. How has it been used in the book? In chapter 4, it's the woman. She's the garden. In chapter 5, verse 1, she is the garden again. So where is he? He's right here with me. I think that's so beautiful when we think of our Lord. We feel down. When we have sinned, when we're in a place of repentance, where is Christ? He's right there. He's right there with us. And finally, verse three. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. She's again in a place of harmony, harmony, a place of connection, a place of communion. Why? Because she is with her Beloved, I think of what Jesus said to us in John 14, 3. Think of the disciples. He's been telling them, my time is coming. My time's coming. What does he say? And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Our Lord Jesus gives us his promise. He will come again for his people. And until then, he's given us his spirit. If you could show the final quote. Just think through this quote as we consider Christ here with us. He is indeed your true bridegroom. He is also your brother. He is likewise your friend. He is your inheritance. He is your reward. Again, I'm not thinking about myself again and not going to get out of the bed or thinking about Jesus. He is God and the Lord. You have in him a bridegroom to love, for he is fair in beauty among the sons of men. He is a friend of whom you need not doubt. You have in him the inheritance that you may embrace, for he himself is the portion of your inheritance. You have in him the reward that you may recognize, for his blood is your redemption. You have in him God, by whom you may be ruled, the Lord to fear and honor. So what can we take away from this today? Final slide, please. Just a few things to reflect on. Uh, First, listen to Jesus when he's knocking. If you've not come to faith yet, and you've heard him knocking, saying, you need me, right? You're in sin. Listen, if you've heard the Spirit knocking, I shouldn't do that. I should go talk to that person. Listen. And when you don't, repent quickly. Turn to Jesus. And finally, love Jesus freely and accept the love that he gives us. I want to close with 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us 
of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So Christ brings us up from that place of being beaten to his side to welcome us as his beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for loving us first. I thank you for this book and what you've been teaching us. Uh, For those of us here today who are carrying the weight of sin, I pray we would turn to the Savior. Father, bless us as we go. Help us to be a light and witness to this community.